so many of the, the foundational tenets of Huga are rooted in the things that God did first in the garden. And of course, since sin and death came in with destruction, everything that God made has been cracked and misaligned and misused and mishandled. So I think that, that we can use as believers these tenets of Huga to create homes that mimic what we see in the garden. Obviously, we're never going to be able to reach perfection, this side of the second garden home, heaven, but we can display some of the hospitality, some of the deep relationships, some of the well-being, the comfort, the contentment of the garden in our homes, hopefully to make a kingdom impact on this side of heaven. Welcome to the Homeschool Compass podcast, a show that's all about finding confidence in community and help in the wisdom of those who've gone before. I'm your host, Amy Otto, and today I am delighted to share a conversation with Jamie Erickson. Jamie is a homeschooling mom of five who lives in Minnesota, and I know lots of you have read her first book, Homeschool Bravely. She's just released her second book, Holy Huga, Creating a Place for People to Gather and the Gospel to Grow. It's the perfect book for this time of year when it's getting a little chillier outside and we're all thinking about coziness. But as you'll hear in this conversation, Jamie believes that Huga goes beyond scented candles and warm drinks and fuzzy blankets. And it really points us to the heart of the gospel and the kinds of homes that we're trying to create for our families where our children are seen and heard and known and embraced with the love of Christ. But Jamie argues that we need to be willing to open that warm, inviting home atmosphere up to those who are hurting and lonely. Our homes aren't just meant to be cozy places where we cocoon ourselves away from the problems of the world. They are sacred spaces where we can help others find God and experience His love. So that's a little taste of what you'll find in this conversation. And if you'd like to dive deeper into these concepts, I hope you'll pick up your copy of Holy Huga at christianbook.com. You can find the link in our show description to do that. But for now, I am so honored to share my conversation with Jamie Erickson. Welcome to the Homeschool Compass podcast, Jamie. It's so great to get to talk to you today. Well, I am thrilled to be here. I know a lot of our audience is familiar with you from your first book and from the Mom to Mom podcast, but if anyone is new to you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and maybe how you got started with homeschooling? Sure thing. Okay, so I have been married to my college sweetheart for about 20 years, and we have five kids. I was a a teacher in the classroom prior to having kids, and I never, ever thought I would ever want to homeschool. My husband was homeschooled back in the 80s and 90s, and I thought it was super weird, like who even does that? But it wasn't until I had my very first baby that, um, you know, God began to uh, put some little thoughts in my head and my heart that I want to keep her at home. And uh, that's what we did. We brought the learning home, and I've been homeschooling since the very beginning. We launched our first, that that little baby girl that kind of shifted my perspective. We, we launched her a couple of years ago and we have two high schoolers, a junior higher and an elementary school kids still at home. 
So you've got the full spread there. Yeah, we've we've worn a lot of different homeschool hats over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy of education and maybe if that's changed over the years, how that has shifted with your homeschool? Well, I think I've been pretty eclectic since the very beginning, kind of picking and choosing a la carte style, which subjects and which curriculums would work best for my family. And and I still am today, probably even more so, you know, every year I get a little bit more eclectic. I think what has changed about my experience with homeschooling, I certainly have relaxed a little bit because I was tr- a trained teacher in the classroom. You know, we're sort of conditioned to believe that education can only look a certain way. And, you know, I sort of had to unlearn how to teach and to allow myself to use a lot of non-traditional forms of learning to count. You know, it used to be, I, I thought if it wasn't formal, if it wasn't measurable and quantifiable on like a worksheet or in a test grid, then did it really count? And so now I'm more okay with taking rabbit trails, you know, taking fun days. In fact, this afternoon, we'll be heading out into the woods with some friends and kind of setting the books aside and doing that. And that will totally count. So I think while I've always been eclectic as far as subjects and curriculums, mostly because I don't think that any particular curriculum does every single subject well. I mean, I think they all do certain ones really great. Um, I, I will confess to feeling a little constricted when I first started. And now I think that I just I've relaxed a bit. And part of that is because now I've been doing it long enough to where I see they're going to be okay. They're going to turn out okay. They're going to be all right. So that has helped a lot. Are there any resources or curriculum that you have used all the way through that you've thought this really fits our family? This is something that that has consistently worked for us? It's interesting that you should ask that because the only curriculum I think I've used all the way through, you know, in the last 15 years have never deviated was um, Truth Quest History. And it's a living literature approach to history, just basically like a glorified list of wonderful books that sort of has some spine information or sort of connect the dots information between each book that you can read to your kids. And, And that has just been dreamy. If I were to think back on the very best memories I have of homeschooling, they all lead to Truth Quest history. But this year, for the very first time, we're doing something else. And it's not because I didn't like Truth Quest. We're just in a different season. You know, my my oldest are so independent. And some of the things that I did with them when they were younger, they just don't really want to do anymore. They just want to like read the material, get it down and do something else. And yet I still want to do some of those fun um, activities, do some baking, do some hands-on exploration with my younger ones. So I have kind of taken a little bit of a turn and I'm doing something new this year. And so far I'm loving it, but the verdict is still out. Mm. Well, that's the beauty of homeschooling though, right? You can have the things that you love and that you pick up year after year, but when it's time for a change, you can do what works for your family. That's right. And it's not to dismiss or diminish what you used before. It's just, you know, it's a new season and things change. And and I can say as my kids have gotten into the teen years, it is a new season. And part of being in a new season is being able to really appreciate what was, but being able to let it go and say, okay, this is what is now. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in that for sure. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what your days look like right now? People always love to hear kind of how people's homeschool days flow. If you have anything you'd like to share about that. Yeah, well, our days start with a morning time, which I know that that's a hot buzzword in homeschooling. And for us, that just means a really intentional Bible time with maybe some academic faith building put in. So we're not just reading by the Bible. We're not just memorizing, although those are absolute paramount to our Bible time. But we're also reading some great missionary stories of, you know, heroes of the faith. We're getting some character training, some training in manners, some training in just basic theology. We're singing great hymns of the faith that have been passed down and sort of are the bloodline of our, you know, connecting tissue of our faith. So that's our morning time. And we all do that together. That's also the time where I kind of give a morning announcements, anything that the kids need to know about the, in the day. We also li- listen to, to sort of wind out that time. We listen to a short five minute news podcast together. And that really helps us to have some great conversations. It really helps me to pour into the worldview of my kids and help them establish some of the, the firm foundations of living. And then we read for 15 minutes and we each read our own separate books. I set a timer in everything because I want to start our day with the what I would consider are the most important things. That way I know if the whole day gets derailed, I've at least done the things that matter most. So for us, that's Bible and reading. So we read for 15 minutes and then I sort of dismiss the older ones to get started on some independent things that require less of me. And I do a rotation with my younger kids. And what I mean by that, I call it a trio. So in a trio, it's an allotted set of time. Usually for us, it's like between 11 in the morning and 1230, maybe just before lunch. They have to be doing one of three things. They have to be doing a, a core subject with me. And the first core subject of our day would be grammar or, you know, reading phonics, that's language arts types of things. So they're doing a language art subject with me, or they're doing a small independent subject, like maybe handwriting or type practicing their typing skills, or they're taking a break. So they have to be doing one of those three things. And when I'm done with one of them doing grammar and, you know, spelling language arts, they come over, you know, I send them off to do the independent thing. And when they're done with their independent thing, they know they can have a break. And so there's some built-in motivation there with the break. As soon as you get done with your things, you can have a break. And then we take a break for lunch. We have a read aloud time together right after lunch. And then I go into an extracurricular loop. And those are extra things that I, you know, that kind of like the jazz hands of homeschooling that make the day fun. And I put them on a loop. So every day we do something different, but that's like creative writing or studying um, geography or doing art, those types of things. And then after that, then it's back to the last core subject and they do math kind of independently. I farm that out because math and I have had a blood feud my whole life. (laughs) So I have to release that to someone else, but that's when they do math kind of on their own. And then I'm free to go about and do other parts of my day. That sounds really lovely, Jamie. When you do the 15 minutes of reading as part of your morning time, do they get to pick what they read or do you have certain things that they pull from? Um, It depends. Typically, my stance with reading, obviously, I want them to develop a passion for the books that they love. 
but I also want to vet some books because I don't want it to just be a free for all, you know, at the public library. I'm trying to nurture in them discernment for what they read. So typically I'll put out a feast of choices, you know, five or six books. Hey, these are books that I either think they should read. I want them to read. I think they'll enjoy the authors that they have enjoyed in the past. And I'll say, here's some choices. Here you go. You can pick. So there's still some choice. There's still some personal um, decision there, but I'm helping them to learn discernment by steering their choices in a good way. And I think it's also important to, you know, as a homeschooler to have a really robust personal family library. I think we all learned that during the last few years of lockdown when our libraries were closed, how important it is to own books. So I know that if they were to pick a book from our personal shelves, and we have a couple thousand different books, I know that those are an easy automatic yes, and they're welcome to read it. I know I've really appreciated some of the reviews that you share on your Instagram of books that you're picking for older kids. My oldest is 11, and it's hard to keep up with reading all the things they want to read once they get to a certain age, but you do such a good job of sharing you know, YA books or tween teen novels that will be interesting to them. So I appreciate you as a resource for that, for sure. Well, I run a tween and teen book club. It's a book club I started for my middle son who, you know, like the typical middle child sometimes needs to be seen and known and he loves reading. So I was like, I could do that. So we have six or seven other tweens and teens that join with us. And that really does help me keep my finger on the pulse of those kind of that those tricky years of reading where they're not old enough really to read adult books but some of the YA is just absolute garbage Uh, and I do the same thing with my tween and teen book club I give them a feast of ideas I, I give them three different books to choose from each month but then they get to have the final vote I love that you have been homeschooling for a lot of years, Jamie. I wonder if there are any things that you've put in place for yourself as a mom to help you keep going year after year. Homeschooling is a marathon. There's lots of ups and downs, good years and hard years. Um, what has helped you to persist? Well, I the main answer, my go-to is that we only homeschool four days a week. And that was something that we that's something that we've done since the very beginning. It's not that learning doesn't happen on that fourth day, but the fourth day has become our buffer. So we either are at co-op, one of those, you know, two of the four um, Thursdays of the month, or I'm leading that book club, or we're getting caught up on projects that we're behind on. We're just getting caught up on life projects, like, you know, doing the laundry and cleaning the house, or we're just having a fun family day. It's just the buffer that my life needs to ensure that I do have longevity, that I don't always feel so far behind in my life and so stressed out. And I know that there are probably listeners out there who are thinking, well, how do you get it all in if you're only doing it four days a week? I've learned a few tricks and tips over the years. I talk about them on my blog if you're interested, but I think the main key is it works. You know, I've graduated one. She is doing college courses and doing wonderfully my um, my high schooler, who's like second, just below her, um, is doing some dual enrollment courses and is doing wonderfully. So that's not to brag on my kids or my ability to teach them, but just to brag on the idea that learning happens. And if you can just ignite a passion for learning in your kids, they're going to learn when and how they need to learn when they need to learn it. So four days a week has definitely helped us. 
I think I finish out the school day before going on to the rest of my day so that I can come back at it tomorrow feeling fresh and ready. And what I mean by that is, you know, if papers need to be graded, if things need to be, if feedback needs to be given to my kids, if we have a project, you know, that's midway and isn't completed yet, before I say, okay, I'm done homeschooling for the day, I figure that out all out. I put away homeschool. I set all of that aside and reorganize and regroup because I think the, you know, as the old saying goes, the success of a day really starts the night before. <laughs> so if I can kind of put a cap, put a lid on this school day, then I know I can start fresh the next school day and not feel like already behind or already, you know, like taking care of yesterday's business when it should have been taken care of. And then I think lastly, I think I plan the bones of my entire homeschool year in the summer months so that school school during the school year can kind of be put on autopilot. That's not to say that I write it in, in blood. You know, it's <laughs> certainly flexible and we, we have plenty of room for rabbit trails, but I like to set the core foundation of the school year in the summer and get an, an idea of, you know, lesson plans then. And that frees me up in the school year to really enjoy the learning and not get bogged down with all the nitty gritty details. Well, we always like to ask the Homeschool Compass community on Instagram if they have any questions for you specifically. And we got a couple of good ones, I thought, Jamie. The first one was, as your children have gotten older, how have you supported them in identifying and living into their unique gifts and callings? That is a great question. And I think the the thing that pops into my head is this idea of deep work. And, and there's whole books being written about that concept. But I think if you think about it in light of homeschooling, as homeschool moms, we're really quick to let our kids sample and survey lots of things, you know, put them in dance, put them in soccer, let's go to this um, aquarium and get a, a membership. And none of that is bad. But I think in sampling and surveying tons of things, we're not allowing our kids to really dive deeply into the passions that they have and the giftings that they have. So my husband and I keep our extracurricular activities and the commitments to a very minimum, or should I say my kids' commitments <laughs> to a minimum so that they can dive deeply into, into the things they're most interested in. If you think throughout history and you think about like the experts in the and the geniuses, the innovators, the um, inventors throughout history, they were experts in the field, in their field, not because they knew a little bit about a lot of things, but because they knew everything about one thing. And I think as Americans, we're too distracted by the shiny. And so we jump into every little thing and let our kids push our kids to jump into everything. I'm not about that. I'd much rather see my kid do one thing and really dive deeply into that and become an expert at it. That's really helpful. Another question from the community was, how have you taught writing to your kids? It's very apparent to me that you are an excellent writer. There is a beauty and a craft to your books that I think is really exceptional. I wonder if that has been something that you've enjoyed pouring into your kids or if that has been tricky to instill in them. How has that looked for you? That, you know, just because you really love doing something and you're good at it doesn't always mean you can teach it well. Um, so I understand the question. I think for us at our home, 
I kind of divide writing into two different categories very intentionally. There's expository writing, and that's like nonfiction, essays, paragraphs, summaries, compare contrast things. That's one kind of writing. And then there's creative writing. So expository writing is the kind of writing that requires, you know, good grammar, mechanics. And that can be taught simply by focusing on like writing one good sentence well. Because if you think about it, a paragraph is just made of sentences and an essay is made of paragraphs. And if you break each one of those components down, a sentence has a thesis idea with a few details. Well, a paragraph has a thesis statement with a few details. An essay has a thesis paragraph with more paragraphs that offer details. So it's just smaller versions of the same thing. So I really hone in on, let's learn to write a really well-crafted sentence in those early years. I'm not as distracted by, you know, they have to write a whole paragraph in third grade and learn to do that. You know what? A paragraph will come if you teach them to write a really great sentence. So by upper elementary, middle school, then we're focusing on paragraphs. And I save the, the long research, the long essays for high school because it will eventually come. So that's kind of... Um, expository writing. I think copy work too has really helped me and allowed me to introduce writing gently and even sneakily. Like my kids do not even realize they're learning proper grammar and mechanics by copying the real works of expert writers, but they are. And slowly over time, you see their own personal writing improving because, you know, when you practice perfectly, you'll eventually get to perfection. For creative writing, I kind of look at that different. I hold that very gently. I actually look to the, the heart of Charlotte Mason when she talks about, you know, the great letting alone. Creative writing is creative. And there's not a whole lot of red penning you can do or should be doing when it comes to creative writing. What you want to do is just really nurture that creativity. Because while I can teach grammar mechanics, because that's very rules-based, it's either black or white, you either put your period where it needs to be or you didn't, it's hard to teach creativity. It's a practiced skill. So I have to give them plenty of opportunity to write creatively without my you know, red pen all over the page and it looks like their page is bleeding. So once a week, we do have a, like a free write, a creative writing time where I might give them a story starter, maybe a few suggestions. Um, in years past, we've made squiggle books. You can Google that to find out what that is. We've done traveling stories. Um, we've, you know, opened up a really cool art book to a page and, you know, written a story about the, the picture that we've seen. We've listened to music and written, you know, what we hear, what the story in our head looks like. So different ways to sort of cultivate that creativity in writing, but I rarely ever critique it. I let them share it. I want them to feel excited about what they've written. And I might give some suggestions, but it's not critical suggestions. Um, because I'm trying to nurture that creativity. And eventually, when they pair the two, the expository skills and just the nurtured creativity, you have yourself some really good writing. Oh, that's such a great way to think about it and some really good ideas. I'm going to try some of those with my kids. The last question from our community comes from Tara Lee, and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering this. She asks, how do you balance writing mothering and homeschooling while still functioning as a human being? 
Oh, that's the elusive, <laughs> you know, mom who does it all, right? <laughs> right. I haven't met her yet. I'm certainly not her, but I understand the question. I guess my short answer is you really do, do make time for what's important to you. In life, you always will. And I just had to determine one day that I was important too. Not that I place myself higher than my family, not that I place my dreams higher than theirs. You know, scripture talks about thinking of others better than yourself, but I, writing was important to me. So I had to find time to do it. That also meant in saying yes to writing, you know, I had determined that that is valuable in the season of my life. So in saying yes to that, I have to be okay with saying no to a whole lot of other things that other people do. I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't do a lot of sports or things that other people find fun because writing is fun to me. I like it. So I have to determine to say no to those things. And I can't be hesitant with my no, because honestly, being hesitant with a no is just assuring that they'll come back and ask you from a different angle, you know? <laughs> so I, I give a hard no to certain things and I'm okay with that. One thing that has helped me out is I, oh, I don't know, like three years ago, I partnered with a woman online. I actually didn't even know her. We met through like an online group to do some parallel play. And we can talk about that if anybody's interested, if you think anyone would be interested in that. But um, that has really helped me to carve out a certain hour of my day every day to do some writing. And you could insert, you know, to do some crochet, if that's what you want to do, or to do some baking, whatever is of interest to you. But I had to be really purposeful to, you know, carve out an hour. Otherwise, I knew it wasn't going to get done. Yeah, I think that's important for people to hear that it's okay to make that part of your homeschool day because you're part of the family too. Your calling and your gifts deserve some room to invest in. And it's healthy for them to see you pursuing those interests too, I think. Right. And you bring all of those experiences to your homeschool. Everything that you're learning and you're doing apart from your kids gets to be added to the richness of the homeschool day. When you have fun new things to talk about, fun experiences to share with them, you're modeling what it looks like to be a lifelong learner. In some cases, you're modeling what it looks like to be a beginner. And I could talk about that, you know, for the end of time about how important that is as a homeschool mom to be a beginner at something and the value of your kids seeing you trying and failing and trying again. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I want to make sure we get to talk about your book. I've been really enjoying it. Uh, it's called Holy Huga, Creating a Place for People to Gather and the Gospel to Grow. And I wonder if you could start by just telling us what this word huga means. I know I am seeing it everywhere in the popular culture, but I think sometimes there's a depth to it that gets lost in the magazine articles and TV shows that you do such a beautiful job of calling out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thank you for that. Those words of encouragement. Yeah. So Huga is a Danish lifestyle practice that has been rooted in the Danish culture for hundreds of years. And it's only recently, probably within the last five, six, seven years, come over to the United States. But in Danish culture, even here in America, it's really been prevalent in their lives. 
Danish Americans have been cocooned in this idea because it's been passed down from generation to generation. And it's really hard to pinpoint or give you like the cliff notes definition of Huga because we don't have an English translation for that word. We don't have one word that is, you know, equivalent. But just to give you an idea, it is a word that engenders feelings of coziness and comfort of rest. So it is I liken it to sort of the Danish way of mirroring the sanctuary life that we see in the garden. Now, if you were to ask a Dane if they see the Garden of Eden in their Huga, they would look at you with their eyes crossed. You know, it doesn't make sense to them. But so many of the the foundational tenets of Huga are rooted in the things that God did first in the garden. And of course, since sin and death came in with destruction, everything that God made has been cracked and misaligned and misused and mishandled. So I think that that we can use as believers these tenets of Huga to create homes that mimic what we see in the garden. Obviously, we're never going to be able to reach perfection, this side of the second garden home, heaven, but we can display some of the hospitality, some of the deep relationships, some of the well-being, the comfort, the contentment of the garden in our homes, hopefully to make a kingdom impact on this side of heaven. You talk in the book about two principles that are at the core of the Danish way of life that I thought was really helpful. The first one is you can't always change your circumstances. You can only change your perspective. And the second one is your outer life will always affect your inner life. Can you talk to us a little bit about those principles and maybe where you've seen that show up in your own life? Well, I have to first preface by saying I live in Duluth, Minnesota, and it snows sometimes nine months out of the year around here. And and I can't change that. Whether I like it or not, it's going to snow. I can sit in bitterness about it watching the clock, waiting for spring, wasting all kinds of time that I'll never get back. Or I can learn to embrace it and find ways to approach this long season of winter with delight instead of dread. And that's what I mean by you can't change your circumstances, but you can change your perspective about them. And I would much rather do the latter than the former. I'd much rather embrace winter for what it is, even though as I'm sitting in May and it's still snowing outside, I, I could easily slip into the doldrums and into a dreary mindset. But I, I would much rather embrace the season that God has given me with joy. It kind of goes back to the verses that we read about in Habakkuk, where he says, even if, you know, even if all these horrible things happen to my fields, to my crops, to my land. I will still praise the Lord. So it's this mindset that says either way, I'm still going to have snow. And I think that that sentiment can be applied to so many areas of our lives. And that really is at the heart of Huga, having a different perspective about the things that you cannot change. And it really does change your outward life, but then it eventually will change your inward life. To, to speak to that, I think we have to remember that God created us as holistic beings. You know, we're not just spiritual. We're also physical. We're mental. We're emotional beings. We're all of those things. And one really does affect the other. So when, let's say we're emotionally drained by all the social clutter that we see in the news or online, 
that can sometimes really affect our physical lives. You know, we can actually become ill in all the stress and the anxiety or it will drain us of physical energy when we're physically uncomfortable for whatever reason, maybe we're sick or we're lacking financial stability and that's kind of stressing us out or we're in some kind of hard season. Well, that can affect our spiritual life. So Huga really compels us to find ways to balance each of each of those areas to find balance in all of them. And I know in using that word balance, it's going to sound very new age. And that's not what I mean at all. It's just mirroring the, the holistic person that God has made you to be. Let me just give you an example. So at the end of a really physical and mentally taxing homeschool day, I always find it so comforting and uplifting to just take a quiet walk in the woods all by myself to sort of reset my heart, to think on all the good things that did happen in the day, to praise God for the opportunity to homeschool. And and that simple realignment realigns my heart, that simple way of thinking, that simple walk through the woods to get alone and be quiet. And I think Jesus really knew this to be true, that the outward life will affect the inward life. Life, And I think that's why we see so many times in scripture that more often than not, he met the needs in a person's hand before he met the needs in their heart, because he realized, you know, I could, I could tell them all kinds of truth about my father in in heaven, but when their tummy is rumbling because they're hungry, they're not going to be listening to me. So in just meeting their physical need of food, they'll be more apt to listen to me as I try to meet their spiritual need and nourish their souls, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I think there's a tendency for us to kind of fall into one or the other, one of two sides with that. You know, if our child is misbehaving, we think, oh, they need a nap or a snack when that could be true, but there might also be some character training or a sin issue that we need to address Or we might be so quick to focus on the sin issue and disregard the actual needs. So it's best when we can hold both of those in mind in all kinds of different situations. And not just our children, our friends, our neighbors. You know, if we can consider that every person we meet is holding a backpack full of things that we don't even know about. You know, they're struggling with different things that we'll never see or never hear about. And I think in remembering that, it really does help us to offer the grace that an image bearer deserves. Yes, that's so good. Well, your book is structured kind of around the seven tenets of Huga, and we won't give them all away. But the first one is hospitality. And I wonder if we could camp out there for a little bit. I know there's a lot of people in our audience who would love to grow in the area of hospitality. They're convinced that it's something that God commands us to do to feed the hungry, to welcome the stranger. Um, But there are a lot of barriers to doing that, as you write about in the book. What are some of the the obstacles you see to us becoming that kind of a people? And what, what can we do about that? Well, I've heard every iteration of, but I can't because, and I think I could lump them all into three different categories. They might sound different, but they all come back to these three things. I think number one, you know, the most common barrier is, but my house is too 
dot, 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 you know, fill in the blank. My house is too small. My house is too cluttered. My house is not decorated enough. My house is too whatever. There's lots of house transgressions that we can add to that list. But I think we have to remember what all of those excuses really are. They're very self-focused. You know, you're thinking about yourself and what someone else will think of your house or your dishes or your de decor or whatever, um, instead of thinking about the other. And that really is the difference between hospitality and entertaining. Entertaining is about yourself. You know, you're putting your home on display. Hospitality is more centered on the other person. And the truth of the matter is no one really cares if your space is small. They just want to be seen and known and loved. And you can do that in a matchbox size house. I lived in a 900 square foot house for about 13 years with seven people. And we had people over at least twice a week because at the end of this life, I'm not gonna be able to take my teeny tiny house with me, but I hope to be able to take some people that I know and love with me by sharing with them about the hope of Jesus. So, you know, house transgressions, obviously number one. I think number two, the excuse that I often hear, and I say excuse, and I know that sounds harsh, but if I think if we're being honest, some of the ways we talk ourselves out of hospitality really are excuses. So the number two excuse I hear is, well, what if they say no? Or I've asked this group of people a couple of times and they've said no. And there will be people who say no. But statistics show us, and these are pre-pandemic statistics, so I would imagine they're even more inflated now, but statistics show us three out of five Americans are lonely. Three out of five, that's more than half. So, you know, if the first person you ask says no, turn around and ask someone else, because chances are that next person will be one of those three that feels lonely and they just want to be included. I, I don't, I've never come upon someone who gets upset at an invitation. You know, they might need to say no for this or that reason. They're busy or they have another commitment, but everyone feels so loved and seen when an invitation is extended. So don't, don't regret sending an invitation that de gets declined. And then the last one is, you know, hosting is a lot of work. And I understand that, especially um, if you are right in the throes of the baby years, the toddler years, where it's like cleaning your house feels like you're eating Oreos while brushing your teeth. You know, I get that. But I think sometimes we're making hosting harder than it has to be. I think that we think we have to secret our real selves away every time we have someone in. But unless you're some kind of mythical creature, we know that you live in your house. Like we know you eat, you eat food. So there's going to be dishes in the sink. We know you have to wear clothes. So there might be a laundry basket sitting around. Um, if we just show our real selves to people, I think we're actually encouraging them to do that for us. You know, I'm more apt to go over to a friend's house who is okay with me seeing you know, a, a messy dining room table that she didn't get a chance to clean up because then I'm more apt to reciprocate and invite her to see my messy table that didn't get cleaned up. So I think we just need to be okay with showing our real selves. It's not easy, but I think we can, we can train ourselves or perhaps retrain ourselves to be hospitable. Yes. And that's the way out of the loneliness, right? I mean, that's, that's why Jesus asks us to do it because he doesn't want us to be alone. So it's worth putting in some effort to stretch ourselves in that area, I think. Absolutely. Well, I wonder, Jamie, what God has taught you personally through the writing of this book. What, how has he used it in your life? Well, God has never asked me to write something that 
he didn't want me to first walk through. And so I think, especially as I was writing this book over the last two years, I became acutely aware of times that I was not hospitable, of when I was not leaning into deep relationships. I'll give you an example. <laughs> so when I was writing the, the very first chapter, Hospitality, which actually is technically the second chapter in the book, because there's an introduction, but so I was writing Hospitality, and my son one of my sons came to me and said, mom, and, and I have to say, we had just moved into this house, into the house we're living in. And so we were brand new to the neighborhood, brand new to this, this city. And we didn't know very many people, but my son comes to me and says, mom, one of our neighbors is outside. She'd love to chat with you. She's just super excited to see kids in the neighborhood playing outside again. And this was my response. I can't talk to her right now. I'm sitting here writing a chapter on <laughs> hospitality. <laughs> And I just like stopped, you know, and God just really, I had a check in my spirit, like, Jamie, you are not walking out what you're writing. But I just thought that that was so ironic that at that very moment that I was putting pen to paper to talk about hospitality, an opportunity came by my door and I didn't take it. So yeah, I think I became just really aware of when I was not living a Hugely lifestyle or the lifestyle that I said I ascribed to. Well, thank you for going through that process and learning those lessons and sharing them with us all. I think it's really, really helpful the way your book is laid out and a great invitation for homeschoolers um, as we think so much about cultivating an atmosphere in our home for our families. Um, so I hope everyone will pick up a copy. Uh, if people would like to connect with you, where where can they find you online, Jamie? I think the easiest way is just to go to jamieerickson.com. That's where you can find my blog and my podcast and my books and any resources that I have to offer. And I would love to connect with you there. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. It's been a delight. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Jamie, for sharing your time with us today and for all the wisdom and biblical encouragement that you've poured into this latest book. If you would like to hear more from Jamie, please visit the show notes page at homeschoolcompass.com slash podcast for links to everything we talked about today. And while you're there, I hope you'll pick up your copy of Holy Huga. I've really enjoyed reading it. There's been so many good homeschooling books coming out this year, but I know this is definitely going to be one of my favorites. We're so grateful to each and every one of you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of our upcoming conversations. And please consider leaving us a star rating and a review in your podcast player if you've been enjoying these episodes. It doesn't have to take a long time. One sentence can be a review, and that really does help other homeschool moms and dads find these encouraging conversations. Thank you very much for listening today. And until next time, remember you are loved and you are not alone.